This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. I hope what I have to say this morning is beneficial and is uplifting and edifying to you. I hope that you can take it home in some way and apply it through your life. Or, or if you see fault in it, study it and, and, and come to me and let me know. Um, this morning I want to talk to you a little bit about change. And change is something we hear an awful lot about. So I don't want you to check out on me just yet. But I want to talk about it from a different perspective, and that is the taste of change. If you've got a Bible close to you, you might turn to Romans chapter 6 this morning. I'll go ahead and make mention that. Uh, we're not going to be there just yet, but that's the only passage that I won't have up on the, on the PowerPoint this morning. Romans chapter 6. When we talk about change, we understand that change is required, and that is basically the main idea of the New Testament to the new church, that you have to change, right? Second Peter uh, two, or 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but he's rather long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance being the change. The Lord wills that we change. We know that. We know that. We first got to understand, though, that change isn't easy and change isn't natural in any way. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 37 says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man, be, man may be. The disciples ask him, When will this age come? When will, it, will, the, will the, uh, the temple fall, the temple of Jerusalem fall? And then they ask later on, Well, when will you come back? When will, when will the Son of God, when will the Son of Man return? And here's what he says, for as in the days of Noah that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered through the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man may be. And now Jesus is trying to get the point across that nobody knows when, the, when, the, when Jesus is going to return. He even goes on to say not even the Son, but only the Father knows that, right? He's trying to get them this idea. Don't get, he's trying to tell them, don't get wrapped up in this idea of when I'm going to return or when the Son of God is going to come back and call home the saints. He's getting the idea across that, that people are not willing to change. In the days of Noah, right? Now, let's just, let's just picture this real quick. In the days of Noah, when he started building this ark that's about 500 feet long in his backyard, I suppose somebody came up to him at some point or another and said, hey, man, what, what exactly you got going on back here? You got a big fishing trip? And now the reason I say that is because it might be presumptuous of me. We don't have anywhere in Scripture that says that Noah preached about the flood or that he warned about the flood. It might be a little presumptuous of me to say that he preached about it, but I imagine somebody would have heard about it, right? Somebody would have known. I, I think I can make that presumption. Somebody would have come up and said, what's, what's all this wood for? What are you doing back here? Are you going crazy or something? Right? I mean, if I saw a 500-foot boat in my friend's backyard, I'd, I'd be interested, at least. All the hard work he put into it. Now, Jesus is making the point that there's going to be people that weren't, that weren't going to change. When Noah would enter the ark, there's people that are rising and sitting down, whether they be, whether they be running around or whether they be laying, they, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're giving in marriage, they're just having a good old time and they don't care. Right? That kind of sounds familiar. I don't know about you, but that kind of sounds like our world today. It's just about having a good time. You ever heard the, the, the term YOLO, you only live once? Just have a good time. You're only going to live once. You're going to die, and you're not going to be able to do these kind of things when you die. Right? 
In Romans chapter 6, Paul talked quite a bit on change, actually, to the church of Rome. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. This is what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, and death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Paul paints a very vivid picture here. And there's a reason that he was so adamant on teaching the church that they had to change. Because he said, just as Jesus died to sin once and for all, you too shall crucify the old body of sin that you once lived in. Now I want to take a moment to, to examine that word crucify. Because I think we often, we think about this passage and we think to put away the old body of sin. And certainly we should do that. But I want to go a little deeper into that thought. How many of us at one point or another have tried to put away the old body of sin and we just hide it in the dark corner? Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, you can't just put away the old body of sin. You have to crucify it. And I think he was making a very strong and powerful point here. When we talk about putting away the old body of sin, I don't even want to kill that old body. I want to crucify it. I want to give it that awful, slow, painful death, and I want to watch that old body of sin die. Just like Jesus died for that sin. Just like Jesus paid the cost. I want to see that old body die. And I want to see it suffer. That's the attitude we should have towards the old body of sin. That's the attitude that we should have towards, towards sin in our life. Not just to hide it in the corner. Because you know it's very tempting to go, hide, to go revisit something that we've hidden in the corner. If it's something that gives us temptation or lust or problems. Paul said you should no longer obey the lust of the mortal flesh but that you should live in likeness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that change is essential to our Christian lives, our Christian walk. We know that we have to change. Exodus chapter 14, verse 31. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now in this time of of Scripture, in this story here, if you recall correctly, Moses had just delivered the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt after 400 years of captivity, right? This was their reaction. This was their reaction when they got to the other side of the, of the Red Sea. The people feared the Lord, they believed the Lord, and they believed in his servant Moses, right? And if you recall, chapter 15 starts with the psalm and the, and the songs that they sang to praise the Lord God. The one and the true and only living God is what they praised, is what they sang, is what they felt. 
After 400 years of captivity, the one and the true and only living God prays to him for delivering us from Egypt. We go on to Exodus chapter 32, not too much further down the road. And here's what happens. When people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it in a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw it, and he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat to drink. They sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. What were they doing just not, not too many chapters earlier? I don't know the exact time frame. Somebody might could tell me that. <clears throat> but just earlier we read that they were praising the one and the true and only living God with their hearts. But can you really blame them? If we look at it from this perspective, you think about the, these children of Israel that had been in, in bondage of the Egyptians for 400 years. There might not have been a person in this crowd that had ever seen anything except for Egyptian ways. And you think about old Egypt, right? You think about old Egypt and all the gold, the earrings, the bracelets, the golden chest plates, the palm leaves being waved on the daughter of Pharaoh. You know who was watching all that? The children of Israel, as they were being whipped and beaten and enslaved. That's all they knew. That's all they knew. It's the only way they knew. They knew better, I should say that. I guess I shouldn't say it's all they knew because they praised God when they reached the other side of the Red Sea. But you know, I look at the story and you know what I think? It would be really hard not to praise Moses, the guy who led us across the sea. It would be really hard not to, not to look at the things other than God. And that's what they did. They just turned to what they had seen, to what their tradition, what their lineage had seen for 400 years. Change is hard, folks. It's hard. I'll be the first to tell you that. And I'm sure you already know it. You probably don't need me to tell you that. But we've got to do it. We've got to change. We've got to crucify that old body. The Lord said to Moses, Go thee down for thy people which thou broughtest up out of the land of Egypt which have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and they made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. God's own people. God's own people. He said he looked down and there are stiff-necked people. You know what that means? It means their neck was so stiff they wouldn't turn their ear to the Lord of God. They wouldn't turn their ear to what, to what God had told them to do. They held their nose up and did what they wanted. And I want to make note of this rose up to play. They ate and they drank and they rose up to play. Folks, they weren't playing hide-and-seek or tag. They were doing whatever they wanted. They were doing whatever they had seen. They didn't make that full change. 
And so once we realize that change is essential, essential and after we have, we have read some of that, we've read examples, we've read commandments, we've read warnings, we understand that change is essential. I want to ask you, where's the change this morning? Where's the change at? You know, I, ever since 2016, when Sean had invited me out to McMinnville, Tennessee, I've had one of the greatest blessings in the world to be able to travel to different congregations and to see different people, to preach the gospel, um, to meet brothers and sisters in Christ, to make a connection that will never be broken in my entire life, with Wheeler, Texas being one of those places. Do you know what the saddest thing about going back to those congregations is? To me, anyway, I don't know if Sean would say the same or or if Brandon would say the same, or, or whoever travels is, you would probably understand this. You know what the saddest thing is? Going back and not seeing the people who were there two years ago. Not just not seeing them, but asking one of the members, where is so-and-so? They were baptized last time we were here. They were on fire. Where are they at? And they tell you they're not going anymore. We can't convince them to. They just, they're fed up with it. They don't, they don't care. They lost, lost that fire. And you try to reach out to them, and you get nothing. Make phone calls, no answer, go visit, and they tell you to leave. That's the saddest thing. And the reason I bring this up is because I just don't suppose that they were willing to make that change for the long run. They thought they could for a little bit. They may have obeyed the gospel, they may have repented. And we see people all over the world today that repent and say, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do better. And they try to change their, their diet. They try to change their habits. They try to change their schedule, their whatever it might be. And they expect things to get better, but they never change their heart. That's why I, that's why I want to ask you this morning, where's the change at? Where's the change? People come to Jesus Christ and they obey the gospel and they expect their life to get easier. I'm not going to say everybody does, but people, people do in general. People in society, they think, you know what, I'm going to go to church and things will just add up and it'll get better. But friends, let me ask you, are we looking for a better life or are we seeking the bread of life? Are we looking for a bigger home or are we searching for a better hope? Where's the change at? is the change in the world. Well, Paul said, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. And we're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Paul thought it was just fine and dandy, didn't he? Paul had it all together. Right? Wrong. Paul literally said, we are troubled. on Everywhere we turn, we're troubled. He said, we face death for the sake of Jesus, day in and out. So that his life might be made manifest or might be revealed to the world through our mortal flesh, our mortal bodies. Friends, I'm going to tell you, I've never faced death for Jesus before. Let me ask you, is, are, we, are, we, are we being faithful to the Lord and expecting the world to change? 
Don't get me wrong. I believe the, the word of God can change any heart in this world if they will let it. And that's the kicker, if they will let it. I believe the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and it can cut the marrow from the bone with ease. But people don't let it. So don't get, the, don't get the wrong idea that I'm saying we can't make a difference here. I'm asking, though, in your life, do we really expect the world around us to change when we start doing what's, what's right? What's your intent? The change isn't in the world. Paul said it was. And in Galatians 1 and 10, he said, For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Is it people around you that are just all of a sudden going to start treating you better? because you started going to church or because you obeyed the gospel or because you believe in God? Paul said, if I wanted to please those men, then I would not be the servant of Christ. I think it's evident that this isn't what makes people love us. If you're looking for praise of men, you're in the wrong place, is what he said. Is it people around us that will start treating us better? Is it people around us? Is it praise that we're seeking from other men because we go to church, because we believe in God? Because we obeyed the gospel. It's not men that changes. Is it God that changes? Malachi 3 and 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God doesn't change when we obey the gospel. What about Jesus? Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today, and forever. Says Hebrews 13 and 8. Is it Jesus that changes? Friends, where's the change at? You get the idea, I'm, I'm, the point I'm trying to make? Where's the change? If you think you're, you're, you're pleasing God and praising God to his fullest and you're seeking his will, then you're not going to wait for things around you to change. The change is going to be in your heart. That's what they said at the day of Pentecost. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, Peter said, that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ, and now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? How are we going to fix this? They said. They had realized that they had crucified the Son of the living God. And they were pricked at their heart. Do you think they were asking what they should do so that they could have a better home? So that they could be more comfortable in life? So that they could get the praise of men? They were asking what they should do because they knew they were wrong. And because in some way, they didn't know how, but in some way, in any way, they had to crucify the old body of sin. And they truly wanted it gone. They were pricked at their heart, it says. They were, they were ready to make it right. Psalms chapter 34, verse 5. I sought the Lord and he heard me, David said, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked on him and they were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And the angel of the Lord campeth around them that fear him and deliver them. Oh, taste and see, verse 8, that the Lord is gracious, that the Lord is good. I'm getting ahead of myself. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. We've discussed where the change occurs. It's got to occur in the heart. It can't be anywhere else. You've got to change in the heart. But now I want to ask you, what does it taste like? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is gracious or that the Lord is good, David said. What, is the, what does change taste like? How does it taste? Paul had something to say about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings as newborn babes, desire the, the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, oftentimes we look at this newborn babe's desire the sincere milk of the word, and we think of meat and milk, and we think of mature and, and immature Christians, but I don't think that's the point he's trying to make here. He's telling the church here, or he's telling Peter here, that he needs to seek the word of the Lord just as a baby seeks the milk of their mother. He's telling, he's telling Peter that he's got to desire the sincere milk or the sincere word of the Lord. And friends, when we truly desire the word of the Lord, when we truly desire it, I believe we'll get a taste of it. And we're going to talk just a little bit about what that taste looks like. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to taste that the Lord is good or taste that the Lord is gracious, as Paul said here. Verse 4 says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded or confused, but you therefore who believe he is precious. A few things I want to point out in this passage. Coming to the Lord as a living stone. A living stone is the first thing. A living stone that is cast down by men but chosen by God. Right? Chosen by God and precious. As those lively stones, we build up this spiritual house to make spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to who? To God by Jesus Christ. Where it's contained in Scripture, he, that same Jesus Christ that he now makes a chief cornerstone, elect precious he says, he that believes on him shall not be confused, but those who believe know he is precious. What's he saying here, and why am I bringing this up? Because, friends, the church is being built, and the church was being built at the time. There are stones that build on this foundation of Jesus Christ that God has laid. There are stones that are cast down, and there are stones that are, that are selected and that are precious. Now he's making the point here that Jesus was a stumbling rock, and we'll, we'll read that in a second. Jesus was the rock of offense to men, dis disallowed by men is what he means by that. Not, not chosen by men of the world, but chosen by God. To be part of the spiritual house and to make spiritual sacrifices. And I want to ask you, what does it mean to you to be the church? What does it mean to you to be the church? What does it mean to you? Are you striving to be that lively stone that is set on the foundation of Jesus Christ to, to build up the church of God that he has made, the church of Christ? And when we say the church of Christ, I'm not just talking about the sign we see out on the, on the road. I'm talking about the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. What does it mean to you to be a lively stone for that? What does it mean to you to build the church of Christ? Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but to them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is the head of the corner. He's still talking about Jesus in verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. You know, they, they appointed themselves to stumbling 
because they would not submit to the word of the Lord. And Jesus became that rock of events because they stumble at the word because they won't taste it. They refuse to taste, and that's just a fact, that there's so many people out there today in the world that may receive the word of God, and they push it away, and they don't truly taste. They don't get a taste of the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. And if you're sitting here this morning, you have a great blessing to be here. If you're sitting here this morning among your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you have a great blessing. Because you have an opportunity to be that church. Not just to go to church. Not just to go to the church that Jesus purchased with his blood, but to be the church. To be a stone that builds his church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. That's a great responsibility, folks. That's a great responsibility. You know, church isn't about this building. Church isn't about, um, it's, not, it's not all about singing the songs when we get here on Sunday morning. It's not all about the, ser- the sermon you hear today. It's not all about gathering at a specific time of the week to praise God. That's a lot of it. But that's not all of it. You've got to be the church. Whether you're around men of the world, whether you're at work, at school, at home, whether you're setting an example for your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your family, whoever it is, you have to be the church. You have got to strive to be a lively stone. And if we can be lively stones, then God will use us. God will use us to build on his church. So I want to ask you this morning, what are you doing to ensure that you're a lively stone? You know, one of the scariest things for me to think about is on the day of judgment when I meet my Lord. And he says, I never could use you. You never allowed yourself to be a lively stone. You never tasted my word. And I couldn't use you for my church. We've got to make sure, folks, that we taste that the Lord is gracious. And I believe with all my heart that if we taste that the Lord is gracious, then we will not want to taste anything else in this world. I assume that people that fall away from faith, as I was talking about earlier, they tasted that the Lord is gracious one point, at one point in their life. But you know what they did? After they tasted the word of the Lord, and after they tasted that he was good and gracious... I suppose they just went out and bought a Twinkie and they tasted something else and liked it just as much. And they replaced the word of the word of the living God with worldly lusts and fleshly matters and mortal flesh. Folks, have you tasted that the Lord is gracious this morning? He says in verse 9, but you, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He says we are to show forth the praises. We are to show forth the praises. Why is that? Because he has brought us into his marvelous light, and we are now the people of God because he has given us mercy.
And I want to tell you, folks, showing up to church and doing something good throughout the week, sometimes we get this idea that it's above and beyond. And sometimes we get this idea that we're doing really, really good just by doing this one little thing. I'm going to tell you, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I want to talk about a reasonable service for just a second. Do you think it's above and beyond to offer your body a living sacrifice to God? Do you think it's above and beyond to be holy or to be acceptable in the sight of God? Do you think it's above and beyond to preach the word of God to those around you? Do you think it's totally, you're totally resetting the bar when you do that? Paul said it's reasonable. He said it's nothing special. He said, it's what's commanded of you, and it's reasonable. Why is it reasonable? Because Jesus spilled his blood so that we could obtain mercy and so that we could be that royal priesthood, so that we could be that chosen generation, so that we could obtain mercy from the true and only living God, so that we can allow ourselves to be living stones for the church that Jesus has built. Be the church. Be the church, members of the Wheeler Church of Christ. Be the church. Don't just come to it. Don't just talk about it. Don't just, don't just preach it. Don't just play the act. Allow God to come into your heart and make a change in that heart. Obey the gospel if you haven't yet. Make that change. And if you have made that change... And if you need help because you have fallen back into the world or you have temptations or whatever it might be, friends, there are elders here, there are men here, and there are women here who would be more than happy to help you. You have to taste that the Lord is gracious. Come to these elders, come to these deacons and say, what can I do to be the church? Because it's your reasonable service to be the church. It's what you should be doing for God who sent his only son that's what you should be doing it's nothing above and beyond or out of the ordinary or or nothing above expectations it is above expectations of the world but that's why we get this misconception that's why we get this this wrong idea that it's totally above and beyond for me to go preach the gospel somewhere it's you know what it's your reasonable service come to these men and women and ask what can I do to be the church and I'll tell you then You will taste that the Lord is gracious and that the Lord is good. When you see the things going on in his church, you will taste. And I'm going to tell you, folks, you will never want to put anything else in your mouth again other than the word of God. If we can continually feed ourselves with the word of God, we won't want anything else. Because the word of God is fulfilling. The word of God is loving and caring and merciful. That's what the word of God is. And the Lord is gracious. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.